Hello there. Welcome to this episode of Bridging the Gaps. I'm your host, Dr. Wasim Akhtar. Today I'm joined by Professor Paul Dugid. Paul Dugid is a professor at the School of Information at the University of California, Berkeley. His research interests include the history and concept of information and the history and development of trademarks. Professor Paul Dugid is one of the editors of Information, a Historical Companion, a book that traces the creation, management and sharing of information through six centuries. In this episode of Bridging the Gaps, we are going to discuss this book. Paul, thank you very much for joining me and a very warm welcome to Bridging the Gaps. Thank you, Asim, very much for your invitation to join you. It's a great pleasure to be here and, and thank you very much for your interest in this particular book and the topics surrounding it. Uh, let us uh, start with the concept of uh, the age of information. In 1964, it was declared by a media scholar that we live in the age of information. And this idea was uh, widely taken up. Uh, however, a similar statement was made in 18th century as well. And then there is another view that every age is the age of information. Uh, talk us through these various uh, views and statements and help us to conceptualize the term, the age of information. Well, I, I think that's a, a great question to start with because it's such a challenge to deal with, but yet sets up um, how we think about these things. Um, McLuhan, the great media scholar, came up with the phrase calling this the age of information. He was, in fact, at the time talking, well, rather generally about electricity, but more specifically about television and feeling that that was going to transform society and in the way that McLuhan had with wonderful phrases to uh, recreate the global village. Um, and so that term was already beginning to circulate in certain disciplines. The, the concept of information, the mathematical notion of information was spreading. So it was very widely taken up and seen as a distinguishing factor of our age. And one then of the intriguing characteristics about it is whether then it asks us to separate ourselves from all that's gone before. And in many ways, some people have seen it as a useful way um, of separating us from the past and saying, look, the past is more or less irrelevant. Don't bother about that. And the challenge then is to say, you know, either we can understand information without needing to look around, or really to understand information, we need to look around. Well, one of the, the paradoxes I feel is that those uh, who say we don't need a history of information, information is really looking to the future, and we now have information technology and an information society. Um, one of the intriguing things about that claim is that in some sense, it is itself a historical claim. You cannot make that claim without having understanding some understanding of history. So it puts those who want to push history to one side in something of a paradox. On the other hand, you get people who want to say every age is an information age. Um, and therefore, information really tells us nothing about particular ages. And that is, again, a very broad view. 
Um, and some people, you know, even are willing to say someone like uh, Dretsky, will tell the philosopher, will tell us that in the beginning there was information, that information almost precedes society. So it's nothing to do with ages or societies. Information was just always there from the, 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 the Big Bang, as it were. So we're always struggling with these di different ideas. And one of the things they do is to push us to think a little more then, well, what do we mean by information? But sorry to go on so long, but you, you brought up uh, Vicesimus Knox and the 18th century quotation, um, which I found fascinating in a way because um, so many people, even if they don't know McLuhan's claim, they roughly say this is a late 20th century phenomenon. So to have someone, um, a, an Anglican teacher and vicar from the 18th century talking about his age as the age of information, at least gets us thinking again. But one of the things that it does help us to think about is what the um, anthropologists will call in their research an emic or an etic distinction. That is, when are we using a concept, not claiming that the people we're looking at use that concept, but saying it's useful to analyze those people, versus when do those people themselves use this concept? And so what was it about the 18th century that in the English-speaking world brought this term into play and made people then think it was a useful term to characterize their age, to interrogate, to understand their age. And so that, I think, is why these claims uh, both represent some of the challenges, but also some of the interests in thinking more directly about what information means to us and what it has meant to other people. This book, uh, Information, a Historical Companion, explores how information has shaped and uh, has been shaped uh, by human society through ages. Why, in your view, it is important that we study the history of information? You teach uh, a course uh, on this topic as well. So why we should view history through the lens of information and view information through the lens of history as it is stated at uh, the start of the book? Well, I, I, I think, it, and again, I was trying there very much, and I'm glad that you, you saw it to sort of capture what was going on in this, this challenging project in many ways. But what, you know, as um, information in some ways is um, an intriguing term, almost in its invisibility. We throw it around without really asking ourselves what it's there for. Sometimes I think that it plays a very useful role in allowing us to avoid having to talk about knowledge because knowledge and epistemology could be so complex. So if we just talk about information, um, and so we tend to sort of naturalize it, um, bringing it to the fore and saying, why does this seem a valuable concept and also something valuable to people? And even if they don't use the term, they seem to have activities and practices and um, institutions that we can still describe in terms of information. And we suddenly start to see that there is something in this idea that we can trace across time and helps us in some ways see aspects of the shaping of society, the way in which, and this is a theme that runs through the book, um, questions about information and control and battles both on the one hand to control information, but on the other hand, 
as we do that, information can often gain control over us. And that reciprocity, if, if I'm right that we can trace that across history, tells us something about societies, gives us a way to perhaps see aspects of them that we haven't noticed in the, from this direction before. The term information uh, is very interesting and uh, can be understood and described in many different ways. As I am speaking with an expert uh, on this subject, uh, if I invite you to define information, how would you start defining information? How would you begin uh, defining information? <laughs> well, I think what you will discover in that question is simply how evasive I can be. Um, uh, because in some ways, the challenge of defining information, uh, one, I mean, again, another, I think, interesting but challenging aspect of information um, is that everybody uses it. Um, but it's a little like the famous quotation of St. Augustine, you know, I know what time is when I don't think about it, but when I think about it, I can't define it. Um, later becomes a, a famous uh, a definition of pornography as well. You know, I know what it is when I look at it, but not. Um, and I think many of us use information in that way. And one aspect of that, I think, um, and again, you, you kindly introduced me as a professor of information. And, you know, if I said I were a professor of sociology, I need only to say that and the conversation moves on. You say you're a professor of information and people stare at you and say, what can that be? And are other professors not, don't they have information too? Um, so it, it's tricky in that way. And again, thinking academically, if I look across campus, you know, I've, I've given talks in numerous different schools, you know, about information and the law school and the economic school and the computer science department all think that they, to some extent, own or have a privileged access to information. And what I find is intriguing in that is that to some extent, it allows us to think that we are all taking on the same concept and have something in common. And yet so often when we look at it, we're really using the term in very different ways. The computer science notion of information, the mathematical notion in some ways is built on the theory of the great Claude Shannon, an extraordinary theory. Um, but he said, you know, the thing about information is its meaning is irrelevant. Well, now, if you walk over to the law school and say legal information, what it means is irrelevant. <laughs> um, you would be looked at with extraordinary sort of querulous eyes and pushed out of the room, probably. So we have this problem that we have a term that seems to combine us. And one reason that I've wanted to look at it both sort of historically and conceptually is to start to tease out some of those distinctions and see if in some help way that helps us um, define our differences and our different attitudes. Our present day understanding of information comes from the realm of uh, technology, particularly from the electromagnetic uh, technologies. As the age of computing emerged, the term information became more and more relevant to how we lived our lives. Uh, you have briefly touched upon this. Uh, now, when Charles Babbage was working on mechanical computer, I believe he did not mention the term information. He did not call these machines as uh, information processing engines. Uh, he was just trying to compute mathematical numbers uh, using uh, a mechanical approach. 
I think it's a great question because it's something that's intrigued me for a long time in that now in some ways, as you, as you said there, we sort of centralize in many ways the idea of information on information technology and information technology on the computer. So it was interesting to trace back the history of the modern computer and Babbage is a useful place to start in some ways with the mechanical computer. Um, but early designers, Babbage in particular, had no idea that this had anything to do with either information or communication, that these were the term that you brought up, the calculating engine. Um, and we now would not really think of these things as engines. Uh, we've let that go, but we've brought in step by step both the notion of communication and of information, which were anathema. I mean, Babbage talked about uh, information for the most part when he, at all um, in terms of the telegraph, more of intelligence. But that was an utterly different machine. And in fact, he complained that the new notion of the telegraph was taking away the engineers that he wanted to work on his machines. And that idea, these are two antithetical worlds, the world of communication and the world of calculation um, framed a lot of what became the computer and that we would now look back and probably talk about in terms of information. But at the time, again, the emic view was very much information has nothing to do with this stuff. We call uh, the internet as the information superhighway of uh, our time. However, for centuries, human beings have uh, relied on long-distance trade uh, uh, using trade routes. For instance, uh, the Silk uh, Road, uh, one of the most famous ancient uh, trade routes. These trade routes connected uh, places of production to places of commerce. Once established, these trade routes also facilitated cultural and uh, information exchanges. Talk to us about these ancient trade routes as the highways of information of uh, their time. And, and I think that that, and I hope, is one of the contributions of the book, not in the least to say that other people haven't thought this way before, but bringing together the notion, because so often, I mean, as you described them rightly, we talk about trade routes, we talk about the Silk Road, and our idea is that, that Silk, and um, uh, pepper and the like were brought along these things. We look at the commodities that traveled along them, but to reconceive them not simply in terms of the commodities, but in terms of what we would now call information, that they were bringing back, particularly the earlier trade routes, if we think of people like Columbus, news about places that he didn't even know where he was, and people knew nothing about those places. And a great deal of what was happening in, in that time was, in fact, to use a different word, to enlighten people in some sense about the world. And that sometimes deliberately and sometimes just as an ancillary object traveled along those routes with the goods. And again, you know, you get things like bookkeeping, keeping track of those commodities, and you realize those commodities couldn't have moved without what we would now think of as information resources all around them. So they both helped construct the routes and they also helped or were part of what traveled along those routes. Information has uh, now become almost an integral part of uh, how we live our lives. Um, and proposed solutions to many of our problems are based on technologies that use information as their 
essential component. Uh, do you think we live in an age where there is over-reliance on information? I think there is, uh, in the very terms that you describe it, in terms of um, what the term that is, is often used now is solutionism, in thinking that information will solve our problems. Um, I, I've used the phrase in the past, wishing on information, that when things look troublesome, we sort of say, well, don't worry, when we have the right information technology, when we have faster computers, when we have bigger databases, we'll solve that problem. And again, in terms of uh, the, 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 what we were talking about earlier, about space and distance, um, I, I've often been intrigued in a way by um, a comment of David Hume, the great 18th century philosopher, just as America was starting to move towards independence. And he sort of brought up the paradox that the idea of the democracy was built in this very small uh, center of, of, of Greece in Athens, where people could all come together in the public square. And he says, you know, how can you have this notion of democracy where everybody has a voice spread across the vast distances of what would have been America even in the 18th century in the sort of 13 colonies and the like. Um, and what has intrigued me in some ways is looking across time, and, and other people have talked about this, is the way in which major challenges to our understanding of our social structure have been addressed by saying, don't worry, we have a technology you know, that ultimately will bring us all together. And the first example I think of is Madison talking about the canal. Um, and then, you know, that will connect us all. That overcomes Hume's problem. And then that isn't quite right. So, but then the train comes along and then the telegraph comes along um, and then um, broadcast comes along. And then finally the computer comes along and each time this phrase that has been nicely analyzed, the annihilation of space and time. You know, that we, if we have information able to circulate in a way that we're all instantaneously in touch, and that's part of what McLuhan was talking about in the global village when he thought of the information age, that information is going to solve those problems that have made us, have kept us distant from one another and bring us together and being brought together is essential to building markets and building democracies. And so, yes, I think that vision that what we need is information and that will solve the problems, um, just as a sort of another aside, looking across different disciplines um, in economics, um, a very important an analysis of market problems is they arise from information asymmetry. This is George Akerlof's idea. But of course, that brings with it somehow the implicit assumption that there's a notion of symmetrical information. And once we have that problem solved and markets will be pure and work efficiently. So all you know, there's, it's a sort of diagnosis in terms of information that says if the problem is information, then information will also be the solution. And in many different political, economic, social spheres, that is the way we phrase a lot of concerns. This nicely brings us uh, to my next uh, question. There is an assumption and there is a notion about information that if the right information is distributed fairly and widely in the society, people with all this important and right information will do what is right. With right information, people will always make right decisions. 
what is your uh, take on this notion? Well, I, I think it's one, and again, it's one of these assumptions that runs a long way. In, in a way, if you look back to um, early pronouncements about to, to the patent filing, in fact, of Facebook, you know, one of the things is they claim is more or less that they will annihilate space and time, bring everybody together, and that will bring social harmony to us all. And, and I think that that idea um, is again, to put a great deal of faith in information and just assume, again, a little like the, the asymmetry of the market, you know, if we have it all, we'll do the right thing. And in fact, Knox, uh, this is Knox, who we mentioned earlier, who called the 18th century, his age, the age of information. He said, and here I, I might be slightly misquoting, but more or less, um, this was now looking at the at the rise of the of, of the press, the end of the 18th century, newspapers were spreading. And he says, more or less, give the people the right information and they will do the right thing. And in one, some ways, it's a wonderful, you know, faith in, in society and that we can produce the ideal society. And he was being lured in some ways. Um, by the French Revolution and what that was suggesting about the limits of um, the British society and whether people should have faith in the public or whether they should be, as it were, kept down under a monarchical system. And he very much came up with this idea, don't worry, as long as we give people the right information. And that idea has, has stayed with us for a long time, as I say, up to Facebook, but you can find many people in between with this idea is that people will do the right thing if they get the right information. And, you know, it, it's admirable in some ways, but again, as we look at the effects of, inf of, of uh, Facebook, um, it, it's worrying too. You say in your presentations that uh, we have come to believe that information has almost inherent and interesting connection uh, with freedom and that information is an important enabler of other people's uh, freedom as well. Why do you strongly believe that information has inherent connection with freedom? Well, I, I think it, it, it's a very interesting battle in some ways um, that, and this is just thinking of a class I was doing with some students last week, um, if you look again in the United States in the 19th century um, and um, in it, 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 extraordinary debates, for instance, whether um, there should be public education, whether everybody should be educated and taught to read and write, um, and also whether, um, for instance, it was even legal to teach slaves to read or write. And in that, there was an idea by some that if everybody had, in some sense, access to information through the ability to read, they would become wonderfully docile. And some people say, we won't need bolts on our doors anymore. You know, it's the ignorant that are violent and that are oppressive. Once they all know, we'll all be passive. On the other side, there were many people who were thinking if these people learn to read and write, as Fred Frederick Douglass did, they will rebel against us and the sort of society we have. Or indeed, that you know, nobody will do those low-wage jobs because they'll all aspire to and expect greater things. So you see, in some sense, a battle over what information will do, whether it will in some sense 
push for a liberation and is that liberation depending on your view of society something that you want or that you don't want but behind that was very much the idea that if people can read they will have a very different view of society and of um, the way in which everybody should be treated equally now we live uh, in an age where volume velocity and variety of information that moves around us and that circulates in society is increasing all the time and at the same time the volume velocity and variety of misinformation and disinformation is also increasing if we look back at history do we find any examples or references or perhaps even lessons where disinformation caused major damage to a society or uh, do you think that uh, this is a brand new phenomenon uh, a brand new challenge that uh, we are faced with i i i think that the 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 way in which we look at it and in some ways the way in which we look at the volume of information can quite understandably seem to be um modern phenomena you know if we look at the entire library of congress you know it 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 seems to hold you know a huge you know all of western knowledge but yet you know it's tiny compared to google databases um on the on, on one sort of small footnote on that is that one of the things is that almost all everybody has felt in their own way that there was too much for them to know in the world too much information seneca the great uh, the great roman philosopher uh, spanish roman philosopher has you know this idea that um you know people have all these books on their shelves but they're never going to be able to read them there's far too much they'll never even learn all the titles of the books that they have on their shelves so that it is already overwhelming and in fact he's rather you know the first stories of the burning of the library of alexandria and he sort of shrugs his shoulders and say that's not too bad actually so the first question is there is that question of being overwhelmed and although we can talk about quantities now really people always feel overwhelmed there's always more that you can know and more than you would be able to know now the second step in that is what among the stuff that you do have access to is reliable what in some sense is true information uh, and that assumption that you know information could be divided into true and false and also what motives the people have perhaps for circulating information that it will mislead us and i think that 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 question again is one that has been around for a long time because of course you know the minute that you have um means of circulating information and control over information people's interests come in again i i mentioned columbus and certainly he's not the first but there are in his diaries and his letters clear accounts of him misleading his sailors about where they were because he thought there was a chance that they would rebel so again the notion of people producing misinformation has been i mean the not the term but the idea around as long as we've thought in different ways about sources of communication and information and then one more thing on top of that though which i think is significant to the way that we think about it is um if we go back to um to shakespeare and the merchant of venice you know the phrase that we know is that truth will out 
Um, and uh, Milton, the poet later uh, in, in an essay looking at the English Revolution in the 17th century, says more or less, you know, so truth be in the field. If truth is out there, we have nothing to worry about. You know, the falsehoods will be pushed to one side. And there is an underlying belief, and I think it's still with us today in some ways, that as long as we can get the truth out, it will always rise above the false. And Milton, in some ways, and Areopagitica were influential in the thinking that went into the First Amendment in the United States, and the idea that you shouldn't restrict communication and the release of information, because once again, if truth is out there, it will always put falsehood out of sight. And I think that perhaps, I mean, people have looked skeptically at that for long times, but I think that's one of the things that is becoming clearer to us now is to look around and say, can we really believe, um, is that in some sense the um, ideal behind the claims about Facebook? That somehow, as long as everybody gets a chance to speak, what will rise to the top is truth? Or do we need to concern ourselves about the ways in which information, both truth, truth and true and false, can spread through society? As uh, the volume and velocity and variety of information increases, there are number of social developments that we are experiencing. Uh, there are increased level of political polarization in many societies around the world. Uh, the question that a piece of information is right or a piece of information is wrong is becoming more and more subjective. And the answer seems to depend on which school of thought you belong to. For instance, uh, there is no shortage of uh, competing views on the subject of vaccination. Do we get similar examples of challenges posed by information in the history? Well, I think, I mean, as you say, they've suddenly become clear to us now. But I think, again, the, the real challenge in some ways has always been um, how do we know what the right information is? And I think one of the uh, ways in which that has become an extra challenge as people began to use this term information to conceive of information as being these small sort of bundles almost of facts, is that we have grown up with an idea, stretching back centuries or several centuries, that information was almost an autonomous concept, that you could pick up a piece of information here and put it there. And again, the figure Knox I've talked about interests me because he was really when the early copyright law uh, uh, laws um, clicked into, uh, uh, not copyright, but, but when copyright was no longer seen to be eternal or enduring. Things, suddenly books were available to all and anybody could reprint them. And he was a master in a way of collecting items from multiple different books and binding them together in new volumes. So they had a, a new collection. And I think what's interesting in that is it begins an idea which has lots of modern connotations of the autonomy of information. And I think when we start to look at information without saying, where does this come from? Who provided it? What are their interests? And, and, and the metaphor I, I, I often use is that, in fact, instinctively, and what we need to do so often is, as it were, look over the shoulder of information. What's behind it? Where did it come from? And what does that tell us about the information? But on the other hand, we've developed so many 
technologies that move in the other direction, that isolate information, that make it freestanding, that make it so you can pull it apart and say send one bit in one direction and one in another. So uh, while in some ways I've claimed that we haven't theorized a great deal about information, some of our instinctive theorizing about its autonomy has actually created many problems for us in the way then that we try to assess what it means. We have now uh, information capturing devices and mechanisms all around us. Uh, we have cameras everywhere. We use our digital identities uh, whenever we buy something online, whenever we use any online service. Is there a danger that this information age may become a surveillance age? And instead of we controlling information, information may start uh, controlling us. Well, I, and, and I think, again, it, it gets very much um, at, at issues that we are confronting today. Um, you know, if we think of things like the, the ability to gather information that we, we never really had before, and the question is, you know, are we just, gathering that information, or how are we then to control the information itself, or are we then turning that round and using that information to control the people it's about? If we think of things that concern many of us, um, in uh, back in the um, 1990s, um, two very young scholars at Stanford started to, to, to see that the web was developing, and think of ways in which they could develop a mean to search the web and found information. And they started to look at how different people were doing this. And in their first major report, they said, you know, so many of these systems of network search are driven by private corporate interests. And that really is the, the anathema to, um, uh, to how we should be searching for information. It's very insightful. Their work was very insightful, and the two went on to found a company called Google, which very quickly learned that if you want a very successful company, what you do is appropriate that information through commercial interests. Then they would say, what you know implicitly what we do is that we drive this company and we drive the software that's valuable to you not by charging you any money, but providing you with advertisements. And again, if you go to some um, economic history, they will say, you know, information is, uh, adver advertising is, they will say with a wonderful innocence, has nothing to do with changing your mind. It's really to tell you about availability and price. But we can now be fairly sure that they're not simply telling us what we might want. They're starting to shape our wants shape how we, you know, what we might buy and where we might go to buy it. Um, and so step by step, we go from that idea that all we want to do is find information and help people find information and give them information that they don't know about, about where to buy things, to the different idea is what we're actually doing is we're getting these people and we're manipulating them to our advantage. And that, I think, is a, a significant step. I mean, I think, again, you know, as the history shows, this has been around in different ways for a long time. Um, I'm holding Google up, but not pretending they're the first in the sense that once people begin to gather information, um, then um, they start to use it 
to control the people about whom they have information or the people for whom this information is salient. And so that second step has been with us for a very long time. And how to encourage the first, which we all tend to see, even if we're not super idealist, is very important, the gathering of information, without it being in turn used to control us, is a, is a very diff difficult challenge, I think, constantly, and one that we always need to be aware of. Paul, uh, we are discussing this large volume, uh, this thorough book, Information, a Historical Companion, uh, and you are one of the editors. Uh, the structure of uh, the book is very interesting. In the first part, there are 13 long chapters discussing the role of information at various points in time in the history, in different regions. And then there are about 100 entries in the thematic list of relevant tools, methods and concepts. Uh, let us first look at the 13 full-length chapters. How were these chapters planned and organized uh, for uh, this uh, publication? Well, um, it, 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 you know, one of the, the, the major challenges that we faced in, in terms of planning, planning it, and this is something that you know, I, I've, I've faced for a long time with the course that you mentioned, the history of information, um, more or less, uh, we go from sort of cave painting from sort of 40,000 years ago to uh, TikTok. And to cover all of that in 15 weeks you know, is, is, is a massive task. One of the things about that, in a way, you can sort of cover your back when someone says, well, why don't you address X? And you say, well, we just have to leave some things out. Um, so one of the challenges is then to say, what seems worthwhile to put in? Um, and there's a mixture. Some things, for instance, discussion of the printing press. You feel you couldn't leave that out. That's a technology of such significance, even if the history is usually rather distorted and mistold. Uh, other things you say, well, perhaps it belongs, perhaps it doesn't. Should, do we need to talk about perhaps encyclopedias? Um, so one of the things I think we felt as we discussed how to go with the book was A, we couldn't really encompass all history, but what it seemed valuable to do was to have a sort of sequential history, to have enough space to say, you know, over these 600 years, you know, how have attitudes to and around information, how is gathering and use of information been valuable and changed? So we began really with the sort of pre-modern, early modern era, thinking we could get from there to the present in a reasonable number of pages, something like 400 pages, and tell a narrative We'd have different authors, they'd be choosing what topics to address, but they would more or less have sequential periods. And that would give us a way to look in some sense at the longitudinal view of history. But then in that process, we'd be bringing up lots of topics that would both have their own history, but that would in some sense have latitudinal collection, connections. And so the longer bit was to bring up, you know, to think of what topics, and again, inevitably many are missing, but what would be important topics to include to look at particular issues? Could you have, you know, a history of uh, information that didn't have a chapter on the book or on um, scribes who did writing? Or, well, perhaps you could, but on the other hand, if you look at them, they can start to tell you a great deal about how you might think about 
particular practices, particular technologies, particular genres, etc. So we tried to balance, you know, to, to, to in some sense control the endless slippage of going back and back and back until we got to the Big Bang, um, and equally, nonetheless, to interconnect these things in, in ways that weren't only chronological, but were also conceptual, perhaps we could say. The thematic list of entries uh, focuses on a variety of tools, methods, concepts and objects that are uh, critical to our understanding of information. Uh, I invite you to pick a few entries from this uh, thematic list and briefly talk us through these. Um, well, I, I think that, um, you know, uh, I, I have to be very careful here because I don't want to alienate any of our authors. And we had, um, I, I have to say, one of the remarkable and gratifying things with the book were the responses we got from people when we reached out to them and asked, would you be interested in contributing? And we got a remarkable range of people from very different backgrounds um, uh, who gave extraordinary um uh, you know, they brought with them an extraordinary in-depth knowledge that they were willing and able to condense to, you know, four or five pages on a particular topic. Um, clearly, I think that one of the uh, the most important in many ways is by um, uh, a colleague of mine with whom I taught the course History of Information. And very sadly, he died last year, but luckily he produced this. He has the, this is Jeffrey Nunberg. He has the... Um, uh, entry on information and going back to what you and I were talking about earlier, also on disinformation and misinformation. And he's not a historian, but he brings with it, um, and I think is very influential for many of us, a linguistics view. So how did people use this term? Uh, what can we see from the way in which they used it? Um, but he also notes in some ways how um, you know disinformation and misinformation have been with us for a long time. And conceptually, he points out that, of course, really misinformation is itself a kind of information. It's not as if there is a binary, there's information on one side and there's junk on the other. Problematically, in many ways, they're all kinds of information. So on the one hand, recognizing and understanding them as information is important, but that on its own is not enough back to that question that you and I are discussing, to distinguish the false from the true. Um, so I think that that is, in different ways, um, a very important uh, entry, um, in part because, um, uh, as you mentioned, it's something that um, uh, it's a field that I'm interested in. Um, uh, I was very gratified to have a very important scholar in the field, Lionel Bentley, produce an entry on intellectual property because the way in which um, many of us uh, know the phrase that comes from the um, uh, California guru, uh, you know, information wants to be free, Stuart Brand's phrase. Um, yet one of the intriguing aspects of information is how often people have sought to constrain it. And one of the ways in which they wanted to constrain it is to commodify it, to say, I can own this information. And so intellectual property both in terms of looking at the, the modern legal system developed over the last 300 years or so, um, 
but also how in other different ways people have attempted to say that information belongs to me. And in some ways, that's been very important to us. If I say I own that information, maybe I can be made to take responsibility for the information and if it's false. So there can be a trade-off. Um, on the other hand, in order to make information into a property, we need a great deal of government intervention. It's not something like sort of building a wall around our property and saying, I'll use my sword to keep people out. Um, and so you can see ways in which the state has had a great deal of uh, interaction in that aspect of information in its commodification. Um, looking through again, um, uh, I, I think sort of, uh, a theme that runs through and has run through what I've been saying, and, and, and thanks to your very helpful uh, questions with him, but um, notions of, as I was just saying about intellectual property, of the government and information, and looking at things like um, uh, the passport, and there's an important chapter on you know how the passport, but also on diplomats and spies, um, and on sort of different kinds of government register, uh, on governance over information and through information. So again, those, just to name some of the topics there, are ones that kind of thematically bring together the idea of information and the state, um, information as a means of government, as a central means of governmentality. Um, so I think that that uh, you know, we have one on government documents, a separate entry on that. Um, then um, another aspect I think, which is was important in many ways, is um, the um, uh, different ways in which not only commodification but simply the world of the market and the economy has called for things like. Um, money. So we have an entry on money. You know, how did money in some sense become an aspect of, uh, the, you know, what? how does it help? And I think it does to start to think of, it, of, of money as information. What does that tell us about information and what does it tell us about money? And equally sort of entries on different kinds of recording um, of transactions in, in memos. Um, we have a chapter on merchants, um, on secretaries, um, and quantification, different kind of appraising, different ways again in which, having said the government world, now also the commercial world, in some sense is formed around the capture, the exchange, and in many ways hoping for the reliability of information. And as we see the notions like blockchain, which are so hip today, but trace their way back through, you know, 700, 800 years of different kinds of recording exchanges and interlocking those exchanges. Um, so again, uh, essay, the, the various essays on um, the different kinds of um, commercial um, appraising and the like, I think, are important. This is uh, an impressive uh, publication. Uh, 13 long-form chapters and then short-form entries uh, in the thematic list reconstruct the rise of human approaches to creating, managing, and sharing facts and information. 
uh, written by an uh, international team of experts. Information, a historical companion, is a wide-ranging, deeply immersive, and a large publication. Well, I, I think only uh, 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 any of your listeners who come upon the book you know, will, will, will understand ways in which you might say this book pinned me down, because it can be physical as much as conceptual. It, it's quite a beast. But, but gathering these people together, I, I have to say for me and I think my fellow e editors, was an extraordinary experience um, dealing with a lot of people with very different views bringing them in some sense together, not to try to homogenize them, but more in some ways to reveal the range of views. Um, and as, as, as we say in some ways in the introduction, bringing together topics that seem to us that are important, but in part so people can start to note, well, you know, there are things missing, you know, why isn't this in here? Uh, and we certainly understand that and hope that, you know, the history of those items will start to be written when people say, well, they didn't do it, so maybe we should. Professor Paul Dugid, uh, thank you very much uh, for being with me. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on my show. Well, it's been a, a, a daunting but an enormous pleasure to talk about to, to somebody who has been kind enough to, to take on this volume and read it and really has you know looked at it with a, with a fresh eye. Um, and has made me, uh, you know, think through a lot of the issues myself just in talking about it. So thank you very much. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.